Book One, Chapter Thirteen of My Antonia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wendy in Lehigh, Utah. My Antonia by Willa Cather. Book One, The Shimerdas, Chapter Thirteen. The week following Christmas brought in a thaw, and by New Year's Day all the world about us was a broth of gray slush and the guttered slope between the windmill and the barn was running black water. The soft black earth stood out in patches along the roadsides. I resumed all my chores, carried in the cobs and wood and water, and spent the afternoons at the barn, watching Jake shell corn with a hand-sheller. One morning during this interval of fine weather, Antonia and her mother rode over on one of their shaggy old horses to pay us a visit. It was the first time Mrs. Shimerda had been to our house and she ran about, examining our carpets and curtains and furniture, all the while commenting upon them to her daughter in an envious, complaining tone. In the kitchen she caught up an iron pot that stood on the back of the stove and said, "'You got many. Shimerda's no got.' I thought it weak-minded of Grandmother to give the pot to her. After dinner, when she was helping to wash the dishes, she said, tossing her head, "'You got many things for cook. If I got all things like you, I make much better.' She was a conceited, boastful old thing, and even misfortune could not humble her. I was so annoyed that I felt coldly even toward Antonia, and listened unsympathetically when she told me her father was not well. My papa sad for the old country. He not look good. He never make music any more. At home he play violin all the time, for weddings and for dance. Here, never. When I beg him for play, he shake his head no. Some days he take his violin out of his box and make with his fingers on the strings like this, but never he make the music. He don't like this country. People who don't like this country ought to stay home, I said severely. We don't make them come here. He not want to come. Never, she burst out. My mamenka made him come. All the time she say, America big country, much money, much land for my boys, much husband for my girls. My papa, he cry for leave his old friends what make music with him. He love very much the man what play the longhorn, like this. She indicated a slide trombone. They go to school together and are friends from boys. But my mamma, she want Ambrose for be rich with many cattle. Your mamma, I said angrily, wants other people's things. Your grandfather is rich, she retorted fiercely. Why he not help my papa? Ambrose be rich too after a while, and he pay back. He's a very smart boy. For Ambrose, my mamma come here. Ambrose was considered the important person in the family. Mrs. Shimerda and Antonia always deferred to him, though he was often surly with them and contemptuous toward his father. Ambrose and his mother had everything their own way. Though Antonia loved her father more than she did anyone else, she stood in awe of her elder brother. After I watched Antonia and her mother go over the hill on their miserable horse, carrying our iron pot with them, I turned to Grandmother, who had taken up her darning, and said I hoped that snooping old woman wouldn't come to see us any more. Grandmother chuckled and drove her bright needle across a hole in Otto's sock. She's not old, Jim, though I expect she seems old to you. No, I wouldn't warn if she never came again. But you see, a body never knows what traits poverty might bring out in him. It makes a woman grasping to see her children want for things. Now read me a chapter in The Prince of the House of David. 
Let's forget the Bohemians. We had three weeks of this mild open weather. The cattle in the corral ate corn almost as fast as the men could shell it for them, and we hoped they would be ready for an early market. One morning the two big bulls, Gladstone and Brigham Young, thought spring had come, and they began to tease and butt at each other across the barbed wire that separated them. Soon they got angry. They bellowed and pawed up the soft earth with their hoofs, rolling their eyes and tossing their heads. Each withdrew to a far corner of his own corral, and then they made for each other at a gallop. Thud, thud! We could hear the impact of their great heads, and their bellowing shook the pans on the kitchen shelves. Had they not been dehorned, they would have torn each other to pieces. Pretty soon the fat steers took it up and began butting and horning each other. Clearly the affair had to be stopped. We all stood by and watched admiringly, as Fuchs rode into the corral with the pitchfork and prodded the bulls again and again, finally driving them apart. The big storm of the winter began on my eleventh birthday, the twentieth of January. When I went down to breakfast that morning, Jake and Otto came in white as snowmen, beating their hands and stamping their feet. They began to laugh boisterously when they saw me, calling, "'You've got a birthday present this time, Jim, and no mistake. They was a full-grown blizzard ordered for you.' All day the storm went on. The snow did not fall this time. It simply spilled out of heaven, like thousands of feather-beds being emptied. The afternoon kitchen was a carpenter shop. The men brought in their tools and made two great wooden shovels with long handles. Neither grandmother nor I could go out in the storm, so Jake fed the chickens and brought in a pitiful contribution of eggs. Next day our men had to shovel until noon to reach the barn, and the snow was still falling. There had not been such a storm in the ten years my grandfather had lived in Nebraska. He said at dinner that we would not try to reach the cattle. They were fat enough to go without their corn for a day or two. But tomorrow we must feed them and thaw out their water tap so they could drink. We could not so much as see the corrals, but we knew the steers were over there, huddled together under the north bank. Our ferocious bulls, subdued enough by this time, were probably warming each other's backs. "'This'll take the bile out of them,' Fuchs remarked gleefully. At noon that day the hens had not been heard from. After dinner, Jake and Otto, their damp clothes now dried on them, stretched their stiff arms and plunged again into the drifts. They made a tunnel under the snow to the hen-house with walls so solid that Grandmother and I could walk back and forth in it. We found the chickens asleep. Perhaps they thought night had come to stay. One old rooster was stirring about, pecking at the solid lump of ice in their water-tin. When we flashed the lantern in their eyes, the hens set up a great cackling and flew about clumsily, scattering down feathers. The mottled, pin-headed guinea-hens, always resentful of captivity, ran screeching out into the tunnel and poked their ugly painted faces through the snow walls. By five o'clock the chores were done, just when it was time to begin them all over again. That was a strange, unnatural sort of day. End of chapter 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.